KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Yes, friends, it's time for the end of year mega banter protracted strikes, AI terror. Barbenheimer, streamer struggles, whatever will we talk about? Banter buddies Lucas Shaw and Matt Bellany join me to figure it out. And an update. After we recorded, Axios broke the news that Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery had a meeting to discuss a merger, though the parties said no formal talks are underway. I am joined by not one but two buddies in banter, Matt Bellany of Puck. Hello, Matt. Hi. And Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. Hi, Lucas. Hey, Kim. So I think we can all agree that the strikes are the story of the year. We saw very long, months-long, I think, record-setting strikes. First, the writers went out, then SAG-AFTRA, as we all know. And it was a grinding experience that ultimately there was a resolution when the some people call the Gang of Four, I called the Fantastic Four, <laughs> not meaning literally fantastic, but Bob Iger, Donna Langley, Ted Sarandos, and David Zaslav went into the room, first with the writers, got a deal, and subsequently uh, the same thing with the actors. Now, there's been a lot, lot, lot written about were these good deals, were they not such good deals? I'm going to poll you two. Were they good deals or were they not good deals? Lucas, take it away. Good deals for whom, I guess, would be my first question. It seems like the the writer's in particular, got a lot of what they wanted, a lot of things that at the beginning they were told were non-starters, you know, the minimum number of writers in the room, um, some greater data transparency, some kind of upside when your show does well. They got all those things, which at the beginning, if you'd asked us in April, I think we would have said was unlikely. But not a good deal just in how long the negotiations went on and how much damage they did to the industry, to the town, to the economy. And that, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see what the long-term ramifications are. I don't think that the increased cost that will come from these deals will impact output as meaningfully as people think. I think the studios were already going to cut back. Right, um, but right. the big question looming over all of this is sort of, were the deals so significant that it was worth the, the pain in the meantime? Let me just touch on the actors. They they also got quite a bit of what they wanted. And David Zaslav sort of, I think, surprised people by saying they were right about everything. Yeah. And I don't know that we'll ever know whether the cost of six months of work stoppage and the billions of dollars sucked out of the economy was ultimately worth it when you look at the gains made. The interesting thing for me is the AI issue, right. which we weren't even talking about this time last year, which became kind of the dominant narrative of especially the actors' strike, but I think the writers as well. And that's the big wild card here because the concessions that the guilds negotiated from the studios, they could be meaningful. That could be a protector in 10, 15 years. We're going to look back and be like, wow. I think sooner than that, we are, but, but as this evolves, we're going to perhaps look back and say, you know what? This was the line in the sand to draw, and they were right to do this. Or we're going to look back on this, and it's going to look like a webisode from 2008, which is a topic that everybody fought over, getting writers paid for webisodes <laughs> on the internet. And then lo and behold... Three years later, Netflix comes along and does streaming video on demand, and it wasn't even discussed before. Now, they did win coverage of the internet in the 2008 strike, so that was a significant that was thing. Yeah. But 
I don't know that the protections that these guilds negotiated on the AI front are going to be meaningful long term. There's no way of knowing that. I'll take a risk and say that I don't think they will be. Just because the guild was worried about how the studios were going to use... Which guild are we referencing? Well, both guilds. The writers and actors were worried about how the studios were going to use artificial intelligence technology. When to me, the real threat to them is not how the studios use it, but how new companies use it. But they don't have a contract with new companies. They can't do anything about uh, that. Yes, I understand that. But that's why I'm not sure how much say the studios are going to be able to have in how artificial intelligence technology upsets talent. And that is why I think the SAG leadership in particular was much more realistic than some of the membership wanted them to be because they didn't go into this saying, we don't want any AI. They went into it saying, this is happening. This is a thing. Other companies we do not have contracts with are making big steps in this area. Let's at least get ourselves paid and credited when it's used and put some guardrails around it. And I think that messaging was hard to communicate to the guild members themselves, which is why we saw the ratification vote lower than expected. But it's the right way to go because if they had put their heads in the sand and said, no, 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 we do not allow AI, that's not their choice to make. Yeah, they needed to get something. And we're flying kind of blind here, right? We know it's a thing and we know it's developing very quickly, but we're not sure what it will ultimately become. So yes, they put their marker down and they're hoping that that will be at least the entree to further discussion. Now let's switch to the subject of box office because I think obviously one of the other big stories of the year is Barbenheimer. And I have to say that phenomenon really surprised me because I thought people will certainly go to Barbie, but how many people are sitting through a three-hour movie about Oppenheimer? So it surprised me. And it, of course, was a tremendous relief to the studios to see those movies perform that way. And the question now is, how meaningful is it? Are we going to be like in a sort of a struggling desert and every once in a while we get a Top Gun Maverick or a Barbenheimer? Is it going to be enough? What do you guys think? I mean, clearly you're not on TikTok as much as Lucas is. Uh, You would have seen Barbenheimer coming from far away. Well, I saw the bar, but not the Enheimer. (laughs) There's a breakout every year. There's some surprise that comes out of nowhere and appeals to a mass audience. So it doesn't surprise me that these two movies were hits. I think the fact that they fed on each other and that they leveraged the power of social media and especially TikTok to galvanize these very disparate audiences into this phenomenon, I think is significant, but probably not replicable. I don't think it can be replicable. I mean, you know, they're going to try. I think every movie has tried since then to seed the memes, but you can't force something like this. You can set up an environment where you make it easier for it to happen, but you can't force this. Well, I can see, you know, Matt Mattel now has all these toy movies in the works, so I'm thinking they're looking at the slates and thinking, okay, Hot Wheels plus what? <laughs> like, what is the big serious movie that we can pair Hot you Wheels You know what, though? The, the, the key is these two movies were broadly appealing to their core audience. They're successful because they're good. If either of these movies was bad, and I don't want to make value judgments on what's good and bad here, but using the barometers of audience scores and critics, both these movies delivered, and that is the key. They were fresh and original, and that is one of the big takeaways from this year is that many of the franchises that were sputtering and were trying to kind of happen because shareholders wanted them to happen, not necessarily because the audience 
wanted them to happen. Yeah. I'm thinking of another Transformers, another Indiana Jones. Right. Mission Impossible. Just, yeah, very was, expensive and just didn't really get there. There were some of those franchises, though, where I think we were surprised by just how poorly they yes. did this year. So Fast took a real dive. That had been pretty consistently, you know, $800 million to a billion at the box office. Mission, I think people were surprised by how badly it did. Right. Certainly some of the Marvel and DC movies, even if they didn't look great, they I mean, The Flash grossed less than $300 million. That's, That's astonishing for yeah. a DC movie. I do think, I mean, look, I'm with you, Kim. I was not surprised by the Barb part. I was surprised by Oppenheimer. It's tricky to draw a lesson from it because... You know, the lesson of Oppenheimer is not, oh, suddenly, you know, big budget, long adult movies are going to work. It's not like Napoleon <laughs> right. and Killers of the Flower Moon are setting the world on fire, nor is it that every toy movie is going to work. But we do live in this world where the movies that really work feel like cultural events. They're moments that people are talking about that go viral on social media that become sort of memes, right? Super Mario Brothers was that. Barbenheimer was that. And then you have examples in a much smaller way throughout the year. And that's what every studio has to aim for. You can't just assume that if you make a decent movie with a name people know, people are going to show up. It's eventizing, and the limbo bar has been lowered. You have to really get down and like make it across the limbo bar because it's not like you can just make a superhero movie and spend the money and put the stars in it, and people will show up. I'm Audiences somehow getting are... a visual of like Donna Langley and David Saslow <laughs> trying to get under Jerry the limbo bar. Yeah, to get it's under the true bar. though. I mean, it used to be that you could do a decent job and people would show up. Now that's not the case. Lucas, you touched on Killers of the Flower Moon. That was a model, you know, where Paramount looked at the movie and said, this is going to be too expensive because if Marty says it's 200, we know it's a whole lot more. They rewrote the script in a way that the studio didn't like, making the Leo into the not the good guy, but the not good guy. And Apple stepped in. And I think this is where our tech overlords are finding what many people have found about this business, which is, you know, it's hard. Uh, the movie hasn't performed that well. I don't think it's going to be a huge magnet for the streamer. Do you think it's one of the favorites for the Oscars, though? Because oh, every yeah. every critic is saying it's the best movie of the year. And I, I have to admit, I'm a little mystified by that. I don't know. They don't get all the nominations. The question I have on Killers is, this was clearly a play for the Apple TV Plus streaming service. Right. They thought that by putting it in theaters, it would get a ton of attention, right. the award stuff, and that people would sign up. But if you look right now, this movie is on premium video on demand for a big price. So Apple seems to be trying to milk more money yes. out of this movie rather than dropping it on the service around the holidays where they could potentially get a bunch of people to sign up for Apple TV Plus to watch with their families over the holidays. You know, Apple is made of nothing but money, so that is not a really going to be a problem. But at the same time, they're learning, just as like, you know, back in the day Coca-Cola did, that you can lose a lot of money very quickly on a movie that's expensive and doesn't work. Coming up after the break, more mega banter. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Scene on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. I'm talking with Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck, and Lucas Shaw, head of Bloomberg's entertainment team, for our 2023 Year in Review. Next up, Amazon. Lucas, I wrote a piece, you wrote a piece, we both wrote pieces, uh, and I can tell you that was a level of contention. (laughs) um, I think yours was way more contentious than mine was. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) I think because it was the first one. (laughs) Fair. Uh, But we certainly were, uh, yes, in combat on that one. But uh, it has been hard for Amazon, too, as we both wrote. And where does that go, Lucas? Unlike Apple, I would say Apple as a corporation hasn't focused as much on cost-cutting. You know, we've seen companies across the business world really firing, merging, doing everything they can to increase profits and look good to Wall Street. Apple has been the more stable of the two. Amazon has come under pressure and cut costs all across this commerce giant, and that has fell on the studio. They're being judicious about what they do and, and shifting the strategy. They've had some success this year with sports. Thursday Night Football has done really well for them this year. And they have had success on the entertainment side with shows like Reacher, which is out right now. Very popular. They're doing more of that. I think they're going to be spinoffs and and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they are figuring out what their audience is. I just don't know what that means for their ambitions. Because, you know, we talked about wasting money on movies. That that movie Air that they put out earlier this year, I quite liked it, but they lit money on fire to release it. And I don't know how many more of those they're going to have the stomach for. And they have done that again and again with cool talent. And, you know, one of the things in my piece was that Phoebe Waller-Bridge had a three-year deal. I think they paid her $120 million. It produced nothing. And then they renewed it for three more years. (laughs) So that is kind of the example. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but I don't know why you want to give her that much money not to produce. Or that much money in the first place. I mean, Fleabag, which was the show that made her career, did not cost a lot of money. Right, right. Won a lot of Emmys for them, though. Yeah, it's one of the few shows that was sort of the HBO type of cool show. But uh, they just had Not Reacher, though. Reacher is their bread and butter. Bosch, Reacher. Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. Right, right. These are are the shows that... Yeah, middle of the road Mm -hmm. and very popular. And the cool factor, there's something they haven't quite seemed to master. I mean, they took a very expensive shot with Daisy Jones and the Six, and it kind of, uh, you know, and then the really... They had the Jonah Nolan show that nobody watched. That one. The peripheral, I want to say. You're forgetting the biggest bet of them all, the freaking Lord of the Rings show. (laughs) Well, that failed to break out. And then Citadel, which is something that was just... Bonfire of money. They reshot, they recut, and they renewed it. (laughs) Although Citadel was supposed to, Citadel and to some extent Lord of the Rings are more in the vein of the type of show that you'd think would work for them, right? You know, like Citadel's a global spy show, Lord of the Rings is based on this huge hit. And I think, I mean, look, they make second seasons of those shows to save face. Or it's pre baked into the deal in the first place and it's just not announced until later. So, you know, Courtney Valenti has now come in. She's a veteran from Warner Brothers. She's running the MGM slate. 
and it'll be interesting to see what she does because she is a seasoned executive with a lot of relationships, and I'm sure she will be more disciplined, and that will be helpful in that part of the business. Or they'll make Candy Cane Lane two, three, four, <laughs> and five. Is it bad that I don't know what Candy Cane Lane one is? I, I know. Uh, Eddie Murphy holiday movie. Oh, right. But, yeah. Uh, so let me go to, back to the old world of traditional studios. Earlier in the year, in the spring, kind of was a shocker that Jeff Schell, who was the chairman and CEO of uh, NBC Universal, was ushered out very quickly, allegedly because of a series, I guess, of affairs. They particularly homed in on this woman who had worked for the company in Abu Dhabi. I believe that maybe there was more to it than this, this one person, but... Uh, He was gone, and that was very surprising to people. And then we saw Mike Cavanaugh take over, but he's not really a studio guy. He doesn't have experience in that world. So Donna Langley, and you could see this one coming from a mile away, greatly expanded her remit to include now television. So again, it will be interesting to see what she does, because she has not been a television person. Otherwise, what do we think of where Comcast and NBC Universal sit in all of this, Lucas? It's one of the only places that seems, the Jeff Shell saga aside, stable. You know, you have a lot of these media companies that because they, like Warner Brothers Discovery, like Paramount, like Disney to some extent, where because they make so much money from cable networks that are declining, they're having to cut costs. They've overinvested in streaming and not done so well. Comcast still makes most of its money from giving you cable and internet. Obviously, cable's falling apart, but internet has done great. And... They didn't invest quite as much in Peacock, which led to them being ridiculed a bit because it's sort of the eighth or ninth place service. But it means that they haven't had to, to cut back as dramatically. And so everyone is sort of waiting to see if if they're the one that wants to make a big play for one of these alien companies. The Shell thing was a total surprise. And the fact that they chose not to really replace him and put Mike Cavanaugh in charge, a lot of people read into that as a sign that they were sort of waiting to make another move, which, of course, Comcast swears is not the case. Right. Yeah. And I think that the biggest role for Comcast right now is Suter. Like, what are they going to do next year? I mean, they just got an $8 billion check from Disney for the 33% of Hulu that it And that was the first of multiple checks. Well, no, they want there to be multiple checks. Disney would prefer that there are not (laughs) Well, they're not going to do it for $8 billion. No, no, no. $8 billion would be the valuation that Disney wants. They're now in arbitration to figure out what the additional check is going to be. I think it's going to probably be another significant check. And then, you know, whether they're going to acquire one of these other struggling media companies. It's a, whether it's Paramount or Warner Brothers Discovery or something else. I'm not convinced that they want to do any deal. But if they do, those two companies are probably the prime suitors. Yeah. Uh, Let's go over to visit our friend David Zaslaw at Warner Brothers Discovery. He has had a real up and down year. I mean, on the one hand, he kind of came in tossing movies and and finished product, which shocked the industry. But, you know, they need money and they need to get tax write-offs and all of that. And then he's, he's just had sort of the best of times and the worst of times. He's having to sell the furniture, not the Jack Warner desk that he so proudly has in his office. Not yet. Not yet. No one's made him an offer yet. (laughs) That's true. David Gevin could be yours. Yeah, he really loves that desk, though. So it's (laughs) going to be expensive. Uh, And, you know, he's had Barbie. I mean, all of these things sort of predate him that, you know, so the fails uh, are not necessarily on him. And we have yet to see what the... Well, the Flash. He did not do the Flash any favors. Yeah, that's true. By declaring it the... A huge win before it even came out. I mean, just... 
CEO 101. Yeah. Do not declare your movie the best of all time before the audience has done that. Yes, uh, that is like the evil eye. Uh, so he seems to me to have sort of slowly, I mean, there, we, we have to mention the whole Chris Licht at CNN debacle. That guy was very ill-suited for that job. It was, they got into this whole, I mean, it was just sort of Don't like... forget a, the can party. The can party with Graydon Carter. Yes. What decade are we in again? Is the it still TCM, the 90s? The, the destroying <laughs> dis- Turner Classic Movies but and then undestroying did, it? Yeah, that's, that's sort of what he's been doing. He's yeah. been kind of putting his foot wrong and then like, oops, I mean, I'm going to really do it this way. Some of it, it's too bad. I had to sell this movie or kill it. It wasn't good enough. In a lot of cases, you know, clearly with the writers and actors, he was trying to be the good guy. He's committed one unforced PR blunder after another. And Matt and Kim, you both just named a lot of them. The performance of the company has been good. You know, they had the number one movie of the year. HBO, especially in the first half, delivered just a string of great shows. And the stock price has bounced back. Now, it was down so badly this year that it's still down under his tenure, but it's been on a pretty good run. The The biggest problem for him is a, is a way more prosaic one, which is that the TV advertising business is in tatters, and that company really depends on TV advertising for their cable networks. And if that doesn't bounce back, they're in deep trouble. Yeah, all the things that this deal was premised on, the money that they premised, the whole discovery merging with the Warner Media assets, that was all premised on a certain level of cash coming in. And they're now finding out that the TV ad market is not delivering that cash. So they've got to figure out where to get it elsewhere. And that led to what I think is one of the biggest trends of the year, which is the willingness to license library shows and movies to Netflix and others. That was not a thing last year, and it hadn't been for well, a few years. As, as, I think you know as that Netflix started out hoovering up all these old things, and it wasn't that great, and the studios are yay, they're giving us money, and then all of a sudden it was like, holy sh**, <laughs> we created this monster that's devouring our business. So yeah, I mean, that's everybody. And now they're back to feeding the monster. They're feeding I mean, the if monster. you look at what Warner is giving Netflix, not giving, getting a lot of cash in return, it's DC movies. It's HBO shows. It's not the primary drivers. They're not doing The Wire, I don't think. No, they're not, not yet. They're not doing The Sopranos, and they're not doing, like, current first... hits like Euphoria or right, White Lotus. Exactly. Or... They have so far not done that stuff, but everything else is pretty much open for business, and they're just doing it. We just saw they put a show, Warrior, that is just being canceled off Max. They're putting that on Netflix, and Netflix is happy to take it because they have the money, they have the audience, and they have the ability to turn library shows into major hits. And that's, I think, one of the big stories of the year. I think we should pause to mention the Suits phenomenon, which sure. I truly don't get. <laughs> I mean, Lucas is watching it now. I, he gets I, it. I get it. You get it? Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, I started watching it with my daughter, who's 25, and both of us looked at each other about 15 minutes in. <laughs> like, why are we doing this? Lucas, does it get better? Is it no. Goes well? <laughs> My girlfriend, whom you know, Camille, and I have been, I think, now in season six. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. It sort of must be like, I mean, like... It's comfort food. You know, you, when I, yeah, when I was very, sick, I, this is um, yeah. a plug for Peacock. I had my own choose-your-own Law & Order binge-a-thon on Peacock, and it was great. I didn't have to focus too much, and the shows were especially early, early era. Choose really your good. own? Like, can you choose, like, specific crimes? You, no, like, you can't I want choose only robbery and assault? <laughs> you can choose the season and the episode, though. Okay. Not all the seasons. Okay. 
Okay. I only want iced tea episodes. <laughs> I don't want anyone else. That is not the original Law and Order. Matt. Okay. Uh, but go on, Lucas. You and Camilla are enjoying this thing. Yeah, so. no, I, it's comfort food. It's something you can put on at the end of a long day. It's something you can put on while you cook or something like that because you don't have to pay super close attention. But right. the dialogue is snappy. You develop deep affection for the characters. It's just a really well done procedural. It's, All right. You we're going to give it another chance. Uh, we've got to get to Disney. Disney, wow, what a year. Bob Iger came back, you know, a little bit more than a year ago at this point. And boy, I mean, the question on everybody's mind is if he had anticipated the Job-like woes. I mean, that many of them are as a result of decisions Bob Iger had made in the past. You can't lay all of this by any means on Bob Chapek's short and unhappy tenure. But would he have come back? They just have had one thing after another. The most interesting thing to me is the creative issues that Disney has had because it's like all of their creative engines decided to sputter at the same time. If you look at what's going on with Marvel, which is a complete rejection of this current storyline on the MCU. If anyone had said that a, a Marvel movie would gross $200 million worldwide, I would have been shocked a year right, ago. And right. here we are with the Marvels, which is a sequel to a movie that made $1.1 billion. Yeah, animation kind of not you know, the, happening. The, the woes... You know, there's a real question as to whether original animation is still a genre that works in movie theaters. Well, it does for Universal. Mm, we'll see. Even the Illumination movies, they have not had an original movie post-COVID. All the hits have been sequels or based on IP like Super Mario Brothers. They now have Migration, which we'll see how it does over the holidays. But Disney now has Strange World and Wish two in a row that were bombs in theaters. You know, and the Pixar movie, Elemental, it did get to almost $500 million. Slowly. Slowly, Slowly. but it opened poorly. I think the challenge here for animation is to get people in the door in the beginning, because I think we are seeing longer tales on some of these movies. And then they do really well when they go to streaming. The Illumination movies are some of Netflix's most popular. It's true, but, you know, these movies are premised on the ability to open. You don't spend $200 million on an animated movie if you don't think you can open it to $40, $50, $60 million a year. And if that's not the case for original titles anymore, there's going to be repercussions throughout the animation industry. I mean, this is something that Bob Chapek took a lot of the blame for putting them on the streamer, multiple movies, and training people. You know, sit at home and watch the movie. And I don't know whether you can unring that bell. Yeah, nobody knows the answer. I understood why they did it at the time. If anything, I probably thought it was a good idea because of the situation during the pandemic. But there is now just so much entertainment available at home that to convince people to go to a theater is really, really and not challenging. not just an animation, yeah. Yeah, it's not just animation. But obviously for Disney, I mean, that animation is one aspect, but the stock is languishing. This has opened the door to uh, activist shareholder Nelson Peltz, teamed up with the embittered former Marvel chief Ike Perlmutter, and they've added Jay Rasulo, who was formerly being groomed as a potential heir to Bob Iger, but that clearly didn't work out. He's been gone for eight years. And I just want to make clear what they want is two board seats. They're saying that the board is too beholden to Iger and they want those seats and they want to get themselves in there. So now we have this proxy fight underway and Bob Iger cut thousands of jobs and slashed budget and it's still not working. I don't know whether these guys have a better idea, but this goes back to like what else? Now they have a class action lawsuit that got a recently favorable. I mean, he looks vulnerable in a way that he really... Never has. Never has. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a shock to his system because he was the ultimate Hollywood royalty. But but the thing with the proxy fight, which is not an actual proxy fight yet because they have not actually filed, 
what are the ideas that Nelson Peltz is putting forward? Well, they're going to tell us, theoretically, in the next month before the annual meeting. But Iger is doing all the things that they I thought agree. he should do. I He's, think the question is just, is the impatience with the stock sufficient to shareholders saying, let's try this? And, and it's honestly kind of surprising it hasn't happened at some of the other companies, right? That it didn't happen last year with Warner Brothers Discovery, that it hasn't happened at Paramount, which is partially because it's a controlled company. The thing that Iger can, I guess, be comfortable with or can retort is there is no company facing their problems who has figured out the solution, right? Like the one company kind of sitting pretty is Netflix, and they don't have the same they problems. They cable channels. Yeah. They're not walking that tightrope. The other tale of woe, of course, has been Sherry Redstone and Paramount. I think at, at one time, all she wanted to do was to prove to her now-dead father, her very difficult father, that she could run this company. And she just drove into it at the exact wrong moment when, as you say, all the legacies are challenged. So she's had a rough one, too. Yeah, there's got to be a resolution of this soon. This company gets less and less valuable every day. They have had offers from outside parties to buy, to take assets off their hands for billions of dollars. She has said no to that for some reason. This can't go on like this. They're going to find themselves sold for parts if they keep it up. Yeah, I mean, she's had the choice to sell for parts and hasn't done it. She's holding on, I think, for someone to come along and buy the whole company. Right. And that suitor just doesn't appear to be there. Most of the potential buyers, are, I don't think, are are very interested. One of the only ones is, is David Ellison. And I'm also not sure how interested he is or if he would ultimately do the deal. Yeah, so many of people would buy parts, but yeah, not the whole. A lot of people would love to buy the studio. But if you buy the studio, then there's not much left for anyone else. I mean, I was told at one point they were very close to a deal with uh, Comcast, and then she wanted control, which is delusional. So, uh, tragically, we are out of time. <laughs> uh, I know this is one of our favorite episodes of the year, and people will probably want us to keep talking for a long time. Some, few, one or two. <laughs> but thank you, guys. This thank has been you. Great. Thanks, Kim. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and Lucas Shaw, managing editor of Media and Entertainment for Bloomberg. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.